I was nine years old, and I was in. Christopher Jackson, he was not in. He was not in her English class. And Claire Hayward, she was always talking during science lessons. She was out for sure. And Alex Dixon, unintelligent, unkempt, uncoordinated, he was miles from being in. But me, I was in. I was smart enough, sensible enough, sporty enough. I was in Miss Morris's inner circle. I marveled at her ability to heal playground scrapes. I listened when Miss Morris read us novels in class. I hung on her every word when she told us math riddles. I was nine years old, and I was in with our cool new elementary school teacher. Accordingly, you can only imagine her followers' excitement when Miss Morris promised to bring in something special from home. The day finally came round, and a, and a great crowd gathered before lunchtime recess, and a cylindrical cardboard tube was, was lifted up like a trophy. And with great grandeur, a poster was unfurled and pinned to the classroom wall for all to see. I stared at it. A precious insight into the home of our great teacher, and yet a seemingly shambolic mess of colored dots and patterns. What does it miss? Asked someone in the crowd. This, said Miss Morris, is a random auto stereogram, or more commonly, a magic eye poster. The large crowd lent in further, and then, of all the pupils, Christopher Jackson broke the silence and said, Hey, miss, no, it's not. It's not a magic eye poster. It's a castle. Oh, yes, squealed Claire Hayward. I can see it, too. It's a castle. And then wait, shouted the ungainly Alex Dixon. I can see it, too. That's right, smiled Miss Morris. Come here, follow me, and I'll show you more. The three pupils beamed at each other and, and, I, and faithfully followed Miss Morris down the corridor. But as for me, I, I stared and stared at the disappointing mess of colored dots and patterns which just stared back at me. And so, and so I stormed out. And I said in my heart, what a stupid picture. What a stupid teacher. I knew that I was not in. And I certainly didn't want to be in anymore. After the events of Luke chapter 7 that we looked at last week, we see that Jesus is the cool new school teacher. Jesus walks the corridors of Galilee, and as he does so, his popularity soars. Uh, Luke chapter 8 verse 1 there, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom. His 12 closest students are there, verse 1, Pupils like the famously healed Mary, verse 2. Even successful schoolgirls like Joanna are gathered, and verse 3, many, many others. Indeed, by the time we reach verse 4 here, we see that a great crowd has gathered around this teacher. And there, with all his young fans looking on eagerly, Jesus unfurls a poster, a picture from his home, a picture of the kingdom. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. Please do stand with me and as I read it to us. 
or when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please be seated. In Luke chapter 8, uh, Jesus, the, the great teacher, tells his, his amassing pupils a story uh, a very simple story, indeed really just an everyday occurrence. Essentially, a first century farmer throws handfuls of seeds uh, uh, around his plot of land and, and some gets trampled and, and some gets eaten and some gets no water and some gets no nutrients and, and, and yet some bears fruit at the end. It would not exactly win any Pulitzer Prize, would it? We can't imagine any, any book club wanting to discuss it at the library. And yet, verse 9, his closest followers really want to study it. For after the recess bell goes, some pupils stay behind. Verse 9. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. As you see the great privilege that you and I are in this afternoon, we, the readers of Luke Gospel, find ourselves in the privileged position of, of being in that inner circle, of, of kind of staying behind after class. For the promised division of verse 8 begins in verse 9, as some ears start to hear the secret of the kingdom of God. Some eyes start to see that the key to God's kingdom and the secret or the key or, or the magic eye post, if you like, which reveals the kingdom, verse 11, is the word of God. While some listeners stare at Jesus' story and go home considering how amazing seeds are, true listeners start to see what the parable means and stay and consider how amazing God's word is accordingly. First point this afternoon, the seed of Scripture, staring or seeing. The seed of Scripture, staring or seeing. It's interesting, isn't it? The parable is often called the parable of the sower. Indeed, that's what you might see in the headings of your Bibles. But Jesus says bluntly in verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. In short, that the start of this analogy about God's kingdom is an analogy that starts with the seed of Scripture. For any hope of entering the kingdom of God comes only because we have God's word. Without God's word, our relationship with God remains a barren land. Without God-given seed, there is no potential for any life in the kingdom. We do not need to be top horticulturalists to know that without a seed, nothing happens. As Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing, and the message is heard through 
the word. Uh, Accordingly, very obvious first point of application this afternoon, God's word is what we're to be about. If we want to see people in Nashville coming into the kingdom of God, as I hope we all do, we will see that the word is the key. If we want to see our loved ones coming to God, whether unbelieving parents or unbelieving children or friends, we will unfurl that banner of the gospel. We will pin up the poster in the classroom of our lives, that which reads, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Practically, we will open up the Bible with other people. Now, we may want to build relationship first of all, raking the leaves of our elderly neighbor or watching the baseball games of our children or catching a movie with the new colleague. But eventually, if we really love them, if we really want to see the possibility of any new life at all, we will give them the seed of Scripture. It could come in the form of a Christian book as a gift, perhaps. You could invite them to church to hear a sermon. Perhaps, best of all, you could give them a copy of Luke's Gospel and ask if they'd like to discuss just a chapter a week over a coffee. Now, I know that strategy might seem odd to some people. For many modern church gurus tell us that the seed is, is comfier pews and warmer handshakes and, and better coffee and, and mood lighting. And for our children, paintball and, and ice creams and lock-ins and, and emotive stories that will make them all cry. Indeed, to such people, such a simple strategy of opening the word with people will sound crazy. Will sound to them like Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk. People who trust in the magic beans, the magic seeds for spiritual life, rather than the impressive family cow. But if we really understand the parable, and if we honestly reflect upon our own growth as Christians, we will understand that the seed is the word of God. However, as we do that, as we trust those scriptural seeds, as we unfurl that, that gospel poster, We must remember, just as Jesus promises here, that some will see, but that some will just stare. Verse 10, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. You see, just like that 1990s magic eye poster that was all the rage in the 90s when I was nine years old, Some are able to see the beautiful picture behind all the computer-generated dots and lines, but to others who stare, it just remains an irritating blur. The Word of God is seen by some, but not by others who just stare. Accordingly, the picture here is a rather frightening one, is it not? For it reminds us that the Word of God is not only like an eternal seed, but, but an eternal sword, constantly dividing. As Dr. Jonathan Lehman writes, this is the dividing line that runs throughout all history and all humanity. God's people listen to God's word. No one else does. Every human belongs to one category or the other. There is no third. And so there is a scariness to the seed. But also perhaps for some here an unfairness. How can I hear if I haven't been given ears? How can I see if I haven't been given eyes? Perhaps some of you protest. Well, friends, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why God chooses to give some of his eyes to see the truth of his word and others not. 
why some people stare at the gospel poster and and storm out of the classroom annoyed by it, and why others see the reality and are filled with all the delight of a nine-year-old people. And I do not have time to go down that theological rabbit hole right now, but I can tell you that if you have grasped and accepted that gospel seed, if you have been made to see, then you have seen truly. And friends, with these verses in mind, I really hope that you understand that that is a very sobering thing, to be made to see God's word in all its beauty. For like blind Bartimaeus, you who come to see must come to accept that you only see by the grace of God. You do not see the kingdom of God because you're intelligent, or because you have a higher emotional IQ, or because your parents did a good job. Ultimately, you see because you have been given eyes. Oh, friends, how humbling it is to be a Christian. How humble Christians are to be. And for those of you here who do not yet see, let me encourage you too not to be proud, not to stare at this parable and think that you know better than Jesus, that you know what is fair and unfair for other people such that you miss the opportunity to see yourself. Indeed, let me encourage you not to be hard-hearted like Israel was in Isaiah chapter 6 that Jesus quotes from here in verse 10. Let me encourage you not to be the nine-year-old me who, after staring for just a few seconds, stormed off, stomping out of the classroom, muttering, what a stupid picture, what a stupid teacher. Instead, let me encourage you to look hard and to pray and to ask the teacher for help, as the disciples do here, so that you may see the truth, that you may repent and believe and leave here following the greatest teacher ever, the Savior who bled and died for you and all your blindness. Well, friends, he loves, he loves to help the humble to see, and he really longs to open your eyes. The seed of Scripture, staring or seeing. Yet there's another aspect of this parable that goes beyond God's work and the importance of the seed and to our work and the importance of the soil and accordingly, Point two this afternoon, the soils of the soul, fruitless or fruitful. The soils of the soul, fruitless or fruitful. Turn with me to verse 12 and let's pick up from there. Verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience." You know, sometimes this famous parable is called the parable of uh, the four soils because you have the path and the rocky soil and the thorny soil and the good soil. In fact, in Mark 4, Jesus speaks of a soil producing a 30-fold crop and 60-fold crop and a 100-fold crop. And as a result, some smart Alex call it the parable of the, of the six soils. But such perspectives are actually quite unhelpful, for they miss Jesus' perspective and the subversive point that that Jesus is making here. 
Indeed, in doing this, they make the kingdom of God like a a kind of hotel elevator with floors of, of spirituality that you can move up and down in, which does not make sense in the context, because as we've just thought about, God's word divides. Uh, There are those who just stare, and there are those who really do see. Accordingly, there are just two types of soil. Because ultimately, there are just two types of people in Jesus' classroom. Peoples that hear the word and take it in. Those who see in God's mercy. And peoples who hear the word but do not take it in. Those who in God's sovereignty cannot see and do not want to see. Now, of course, every soil physically hears Jesus, as it were. Every member of the crowd in verse 4 audibly hears the parable. But only one soil hears and lets the seed of Scripture take root. Accordingly, it's not as though there's some kind of pathy Christian who sometimes falls asleep in the sermon. And then there's the kind of the, the rocky Christian who's, who's a bit better when it comes to the Bible but worries what their friends think all the time. And then the thorny sort of Christian who's, who's better again but still loves fantasy football more than a devotional. And then finally, the, the Christian topsoil, the missionary, the pastor, the seminary student, the girl who knows all the answers in small group. No. One soil, one soil belongs to the kingdom and the other three do not. One soil lets the seed of God's word slowly take deep root in their soul and the other three do not. Now, whether it's Satan, or it's suffering here, or success mentioned, that is the primary cause of failure in the hearer's soul or something else, the thing that we are to note is that every one, every one of these first three soils is not kingdom soil. And so, friends, how do we know? How do we know which soil is which? Key question, how do we know which soil we are? If it's not based on falling asleep in the sermon once, or the degree to which we feel peer pressure now, or love our stuff, or or studying theology. What makes the good soil good? Well, friends, as we look at the parable, hopefully the answer is quite obvious. The good soil is marked by fruit. For that is what every sower finally looks for. Jesus goes around sowing the seed of Scripture, but what Jesus cares about most is the fruit of righteousness. You know, behind my parents' uh, home in England, there's a very large piece of of farmland. And about this time of year, you can look out of their kitchen window and see a a beautiful scenic wheat crop blowing in the the autumn breeze. And though I don't know the farmer like my parents, I do know that he cares about only one thing. He cares only about the fruit, the crop, the grain. And hence I know that he is not frenetic with excitement in February when he's planting his spring wheat. And he's not animated in April when he sees those first green shoots. And he's not jumping around in June as he applies more fertilizer. But he is satisfied in September when he's harvesting the fruit which hangs richly from each golden stem. Because fruit is what the farmer looks for. That is his definition of good soil and soil that is good for nothing. And so what we see here, like in so many parables, is that the crescendo is the key. In short, it's all about verse 15. Look there with me. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, 
They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and then most significant difference, bear fruit with patience. Can you comprehend what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that you show that you really see, that you show that you are the good soil by patiently producing fruit. The fruit comes not instantaneously, not necessarily quickly, not after just one summer camp or one great sermon, but comes, verse 15, by holding the word fast. For the fruit comes in an honest and good heart, in a humble soul that trembles at the word of God. For it is fruit that must come through in the end. Because as a Christian, God's word, his seed, it is buried in your soul and no longer the old seed of Adam. And hence this fruit evidences itself in, in, in being like Christ. For fruit in the true students of Jesus is not only an inert and a, and a kind of correct perception of the magic eye poster, but rather a gleeful following of the teacher down the corridor and for the rest of our lives. Yes, the authentic Christian soil is a soil which has received God's grace in his son. It is a soul which trusts Jesus' work and, and not our fruit ultimately. And yet it is a soil that loves seeing the evidence of that trust. That loves seeing the, 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 the seed evidently at work in their lives and gains great confidence through its production year on year. A few years ago, I remember a really good friend of mine, um, and I asked him when he became a follower of Christ. And I guess when I asked him, I was looking for a moment when he cognitively understood the gospel and accepted it. When he understood that, that, that gospel poster, God's word, when he came to trust in Jesus' death in his place. But instead he told me a story, a story of how he'd been thinking loads and loads about Christianity and a time when the good news of Jesus had been faithfully taught to him and that he had heard and that he had, he had started to study and, and indeed accept a seed that was beginning to penetrate his life. And hence, after asking him when he became a follower of Christ, he told me a story. How very late one night during this period of, of really listening to God's word, he was driving. He was driving home and he came to a gas station. After filling up his car, he went to pay. And behind the cash register was a very attractive girl. And he, being a very good-looking young guy, got into friendly conversation with her. But after only a few minutes, to his complete and utter astonishment, the girl asked if he wanted to sleep with her. He turned around. There was nobody there. He was a single guy. He was hundreds of miles from home. It was the middle of the night. She was extremely attractive. This is how he always lived. But instead, he politely nodded, and he turned on his heels, and he went back to his car. And he said to me that it was in that moment that he really knew that he'd become a follower of Christ. Because God's word was not just seen cognitively. It was now being lived out invisible new fruit. Our friends, of course, as we likewise search for such fruit 
This does not mean that we are called to constantly label others bad soil, placing them in their non-Christian category if a certain crop fails. Every Christian is a sinner, a sinner in progress. The day of harvest has not yet come. And we must remember verse 15, that fruit often comes with much patience. However, however, like my friend, we must not miss the great opportunity to look for new, tangible gospel fruit in our lives, of saying no to the old seeds of sin, saying no to anger and lust and greed. And we must not miss the opportunity to marvel at hopefully increasing fruits of the Spirit, more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Fruits that give us great confidence that we are in God's kingdom. Fruits that are plain and obvious, that are often helpful in preventing epistemological introspection, are trying to, to, to work out whether we really see the truth or, or we see the truth partially or not as well as others. What simple confidence we may gain as we see the seed of the word taking deeper root in our souls. What a joy it is to see that in our lives to encourage others in it when we see it in them. Conversely, in the midst of everyday, everyday temptation, what unsteady and unstable Christians we will become if every opportunity we have to display gospel fruit becomes an opportunity to smash fruit. Friend, if the fruits in your life never, ever match Jesus's, if you hear the word every week and you see absolutely no progress, thorns just remaining thorns and slowly not turning into flowers, then don't be surprised if you struggle and doubt your faith. Maybe you should. Because the soils of the soul, fruitless or fruitful. And that, that is the essence, I think, of this text. That is the main point, that the dividing, life-giving seed is Scripture. And if a soul really receives it, it will produce fruit. It will. And in so many respects, those are the two key components, therefore, that the seed and the soil. And yet, because of that, there's one final component, one final S for us in our last few minutes, the sower. Point three, just in the last few minutes, the sower of salvation, selecting or scattering. The sower of salvation, selecting or scattering. Now, the main sower in the parable is obviously Jesus. And the seed in the analogy, as we've said, is the seed of his word. And the soil that Jesus plows right there and then is that Galilean crowd. But this afternoon, in this moment of history, with our Bibles open right now, it is we who are Jesus' crowd. And it is our souls being tilled by him right now. Either prompting as we walk out that door at the end. Blindness and so fruitlessness. Or insight and so fruitfulness. Jesus is still sowing today. But you know in another sense. Christians are also called to be the sowers here. Our seed is exactly the same. It is Jesus' seed. We need no new stories. We need no new parables. We need no new message about the kingdom. But with Jesus no longer physically in earthly fields, there is an unfinished task of sowing to be done. And hence, as Luke's second book records that we've looked at recently, 
It becomes the job of Jesus' pupils to teach Jesus' word. And so to sow the seed of the gospel to Jerusalem, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Friends, if we are the good soil, the baton passes on to us. And it becomes our job to pin up that magic eye poster of the gospel. Those who unfurl it regularly. Accordingly, what do we learn here about how to sow? What farming methods do we glean from the parable of the sower and how Jesus sows in these verses? Well, just take a look with me at verse 5 again. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, that the word here for, for sowing is more literally scattering. The word in the original Greek conveys a, a throwing out across a wide expanse. Indeed, this was just farming practice, standard farming practice at the time. A farmer would just walk along and would just chuck seed out everywhere. For in the harsh and rocky scrubland of Galilee, who knew if it would find good soil? In the fleeting spring months, there was no time for any research. Farmers would just put their hand in the bag and just launch the seed everywhere and pray for the best. The sower does not measure the pH levels in the soil first. The sower does not try and take a lab sample before doing any sowing. The farmer does not select. He just scatters. And hence the sower is like Jesus, for Jesus' crowd has not been selected. The crowd is diverse. The previously demon-possessed Mary is there in verse 2, and, and yet the rich and noble Joanna in verse 3. Moreover, in verse 4, the crowd is large. And as Jesus throws out gospel seed, he simply shouts, He who has ears, let him hear. Friends, how unlike us so often in our sowing of the word. For friends, I don't know about you, but I'm often very conscious that, that my evangelism is far more selective than scattering. For I am often very prone to spend hours wandering around the field, testing the soil, nervously holding out my one or two seeds for the year, finding the most hopeful places, wisely drilling down over month after month, and finally placing the one seed carefully, Finally, when I come to see that the sword is bad, when I see that not one ear of corn appears, I consider that I'm not cut out to be a farmer. Friends, that's not how we're to sow. We're not to sow like snipers. We're to load the seed in the shotgun. We are called by Christ to be like him, to not judge where it might be best to throw, but to grab handfuls of the gospel and to be liberal in our scattering, in the knowledge that the seed will do the work, and that the seed will open eyes, and that the seed will fall on some good ground, and that the seed will produce good fruit in time. Indeed, if we do not know who will just stare and who will really see, if we do not know which soil will be fruitless and which soil will be fruitful after many years, why would we spend all our time selecting the soil and not just scattering the seed? Friends, of course, we need to be wise in our evangelism. Hiring a megaphone and shouting the gospel to everyone who comes out of Vanderbilt University is not what this passage is calling us to. And yet I do think that we should see here the importance of dipping our hand in the gospel bag often and the importance of scattering the seed of God's word indiscriminately. 
For I think we are far too prone to think in a worldly way, to think this person is likely to see, but not this person. Friends, in 1992, a magic eye poster was unfurled in an elementary school classroom. And I could not see its truth. But fortunately, I was not the only person that the teacher showed the picture to. And perhaps to the surprise of my teacher, it was Christopher Jackson who first saw. And the irritating Claire Hayward soon after that. And finally, even the uncoordinated, unkempt, unintelligent Alex Dixon. The seeds of Scripture. Staring or seeing. The soils of the soul. Fruitless or fruitful. The sower of salvation. Selecting or scattering. Who are you? Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, for any here who do not have eyes yet to see, please would you help them to see the truth of your word. And for those of us who have graciously been given eyes to see, may we cherish your word. Would we hold it more dearly? Would we let that good seed work and produce much fruit in our lives such that we encourage ourselves and other people? And Father, may we be those who sow hard in every season, scattering your seed, unfurling your word, and simply trusting you with the results. We pray this for your glory and for our good. Amen.